I mean, it could be a video game. It could be anything. No. No, it's not a video game. Well, what when, kind when of did... a video game would be called Table Topics? Hey, don't judge. There are a lot of weird video games out there now. Are there any that are called Table Topics? There are some I would call Table Topics. Have you not played uh, Tabletop Simulator? The game where you can simulate flipping over a table? No, I haven't played that one. I would call that Table Topics. Is that what that's about? Yeah. Because it's been described to me in somewhat different terms. Okay, well, I mean, you could play a board game, but you can press a key to flip the table when you're done playing the game. If it had been communicated to me that that were an option, I might have actually played that game. Uh, anyway, welcome to Table Topics, the board game podcast. My name is Justin Brown, and to my right is... Thomas Lyles. Board games are serious business, and we need serious people to talk about them. But until we do, you'll have to do with us. Serious business indeed. I make absolutely no money from it. The date is August 5th, 2018. Now, Tom, let's uh, start with the news, because this is Gen Con week. This is the last day of Gen Con. And quite a lot has happened during this week. I have half a page of stuff to go over here. Uh, In the past week, Christian T. Peterson, the CEO of Asmodee North America uh, and former founder of Fantasy Flight Games, has said that he is leaving, he is stepping down to focus on family, health, and whatever it is that millionaires focus on when they leave their companies. You think he's going to Daniel Day-Lewis it? Do you think he's actually God, or do you think... Uh... Oh, I'm sure he's getting a nice severance package, but um, you know, there's no, no point in sticking around once you've uh, lined your pockets with fat loot. Well, having never met Christian T. Peterson, uh, I can't really speak to any personal qualities that he has. However, uh, it has been uh, reported in other media that when he was making the first Twilight Imperium he actually hand cut all of the chits himself and in so doing it hailed so much cardboard dust that he had to seek hospitalization and immediate medical treatment for some kind of sudden onset emphysema and I think that makes him the most hardcore board gamer that I've ever heard of in my entire life. Uh, I would agree with you. I have nothing against the man personally, as much as I like to joke about uh, his company, both companies, and the products that they create, and their public-facing. But even when he was CEO of Asmodee, he really pushed the effort to bring out Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, a game that I thought I would not enjoy at all and have enjoyed every single time it has come to the table, even when it's been incredibly frustrating. FFG is a good company in terms of curating those kind of old games, too. There's not really a a good many uh, companies that would have reached back into the depths of time uh, and rescued games like Merchant of Venus or Cosmic Encounter uh, from whatever hole they ended up in, uh, and yet here we are. So... Like them or lump them, like them or lump FFG and all of the things that they do. And boy, they do some things that I disagree with. Uh, I think it's a job well done. Uh, 
Yeah, wish him well, whatever else he's doing. I agree. I would have not played Samurai. Um, I'll say, like, one of my top five favorite games if it wasn't for Fantasy Flight games. Now, speaking of Fantasy Flight games, uh, some more news announced at JedCon. Richard Garfield pairing up with Fantasy Flight uh, to create a new collectible deck game called Keyforge. This is a game with unique decks. Um, all the cards have a unique backing. You purchase a 36-card deck. That is your deck. Uh, some decks will be rarer than others, but the entire intent with the game is you purchase a deck, you play with a deck. Uh, now, Tom, you have been in the magic scene far longer than I have. What is your take on this? In the interest of full disclosure, I have been out of the magic scene for far longer than I was in it. However, I am encouraged by some of the things that I'm reading about this. Uh, in particular, it seems to be an effort against net decking, which is a term that is so quaint now that I'm not even sure that anybody even like thinks of it or thinks of it as being a bad thing. But basically, net decking is a concept where people will, instead of developing their own collectible card game decks go on the internet and take what is doing well and play it uh a thing that i frankly kind of drove me out of magic because it seemed to suck the fun of having that kind of discovery in it um that being said it's it's quite outside my area of interest at this point so i don't think that i'll be following it too closely and uh seems like an effort to generate you know more and better skews for when the star wars license expires or for when something else uh goes wrong i don't know if it'll be a great game or anything like that but it's just not something that i'm super interested in yeah frankly i think the uh concept is kind of absurd um correct me if i'm wrong but i believe in the early days of magic they did release like randomized decks that you could purchase and just run out of the box They've always made an effort to give new players an option to play something. And one of the hardest like projects they've undertaken is to make those good without defeating their own, um, their own premise of buying more and more cards that are, are better and are rarer and are uh, thus harder to, to get hands on. Um, once upon a time, when I was playing, there was a card called Umezawa's Jeet, which was a very, very powerful card. And by a strange quirk, it was available in a pre-constructed deck, kind of similar to what we're discussing now. That deck actually was extremely hard to get a hand on after, uh, after you know, people realized how powerful this card was and it did all sorts of like weird things to the value of that pre-constructed deck they haven't had another one situation quite that bad that i'm aware of um but it's just an example that they um you know they want to have this easy experience for new players to uh get off of the ground really quickly but at the same time uh, they can't just guarantee that by buying this deck, you're going to get a bunch of awesome cards because they really need people to buy those booster packs in order to get them. Yeah, yeah. I, um, the most interesting thing about this to me is that they profess, at least in their trailer, 
billions of possible combinations uh, through the use of printing advancements. Um, we have we have discussed privately uh, numerous times about how far printing has come along, and uh, Asmodee is opening a distribution center and manufacturing center in the states. Uh, to me, that as a as a budding designer, as someone who has looked into options for printing and manufacturing, if Asmodee creates an affordable option for people within the states, my opinion of the company would reverse completely because uh, right now they're kind of a joke in my mind. But um, if they if they actually do some real good for uh, the board game community. Uh, like I, I will, I will hop on their bandwagon immediately. Well, I mean, like I said before, FFG has done a lot of nice things. Um, they just have like this kind of product treadmill that we find annoying. That'd be fair to say, right? Like, yeah, yes, yes. And I, I think it is healthy to uh, keep million dollar corporations at a arm's length. I don't think that's um, too far out of the question. I respect their efforts while criticizing some of their business practices. Uh, and speaking of Asmodee, uh, we come to another Gen Con announcement. Tom, did you know that Asmodee Digital is putting out a video game version of one of the best board games on the market right now? Gloomhaven? No, Mansions of Madness. Oh. Yes, yes. Asmodee Digital has announced uh, Mansions of Madness, a... a standalone video game, it is not based on the board game, uh, as well with Gloomhaven. Details are sparse. Uh, we have only seen the Kragheart fighting some skeletons in what appears to be the first dungeon, uh, but it does not appear to be multiplayer. It does not appear to be based on the board game itself. Well, tell me more about this Eldritch Horror thing. I hadn't actually heard about that. Well, Mansions of Madness, I, I, I don't know oh, anything okay, about it. I don't care anything this. about it, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more Gloomhaven is always a good thing, in this man's opinion. Well, especially because Gloomhaven is a uh, game that asks a lot of the people who play it in terms of homework and all that. You can see that from the variety of apps that have sprung up to help keep track of all the paperwork, uh, conditions on the monsters, their HP totals, stuff like that. And uh, to have a computer that uh, will do that homework for you uh, sounds fine. Also, Gloomhaven, for its many splendors, is quite an ugly game. Very and... ugly. Um, <laughs> the the artwork itself is fine. The game feels cheap. Cheap and almost in 80s way, which on some level, I, uh, I really appreciate, uh, because as you, could, as you could see by looking around my living room... That's something our listeners will enjoy. I, 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 surround, I surround myself by a lot of ugly things. Uh, Tom, what is your opinion on Machi Koro? My opinion on Machi Koro is that I'd rather not for play it ever again. <laughs> well, how would you like to play it ten times and experience the story, the story of Machi Koro? I'm really wishing that I had kept that comic book with the picture of the guy that's shooting his head off so that I could show it to you right now because it seems like... First good opportunity I've had well, to use this joke since Origins. Well, Tom... Um, I'm even going to look it up on the internet. Rob Davio, uh, your friend and mine, uh, who has created some of the ga some games that we have enjoyed the most, including 
Risk Legacy, and Seafall, which neither of us actually played, is working on Machi Koro, the Legacy game. Did Davio have any involvement in Charterstone? Charterstone, no. No, that was um, no involvement in that. That uh, Not a Legacy game in name. Uh, certainly a Legacy game in inspiration. Does it feel like the legacy brand has somewhat lost its momentum and is move moment is now over after playing pandemic legacy um i thought that was going to be the new hottest hotness i thought that was going to take the board game world by storm um I have never agreed with the idea that board games should be kept pristine and clean and never tampered with, uh, but after we played Pandemic Legacy, we tried Risk Legacy. Would you say it was a miserable experience? I would say that most of the people playing it, that we had a full table, had a pretty miserable experience. And so that's why I was willing to give the Legacy format another chance. Uh, Risk is, is just not a great game. Um, so then we went to Pandemic Legacy Season 2, uh, which um, I is, is a fine game. Uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 2, I actually enjoy it more than Base Pandemic because it is a, a complete upheaval of what you're trying to accomplish in Pandemic. But we just, we lost, um, we lost one player, uh, and as time moves on, interest in playing one thing also wanes. It also got beat pretty bad by Gloomhaven. Like, yes. That's definitely like the yes. Han Solo, the Solo movie opening against yes. the Avengers movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a topic for another time. How often do we ask ourselves, this is good, but is it Gloomhaven slash A Feast for Odin slash Elgrond slash etc.? Um... All right, uh, winding on down the news. Todd, what is your opinion on Munchkin? My opinion on Munchkin... Welcome to Hot Takes Podcast. (laughs) No, no, yeah, yeah, they, um... uh, Steve Jackson Games has announced 40k Munchkin... Uh, one of the first Munchkin spinoffs Didn't was... did they do that yeah, one already? Whoa, 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 that is Space Munchkin. Yeah, it had uh, the guy yeah, in the had power it, armor it, it on had, the box. Uh, it had a Space Marine on the box. This, however, they forked over uh, however many pennies it cost to fully license Warhammer 40k. So this is an ironic situation that I confess to be very surprised by. Time was that Munchkin didn't license things because it was a parody of them and now they've kind of taken the um flux approach of licensing everything and making a ver- like there, a proper version of there it there have been some licenses uh likely licenses they were able to score for a song um i do know of adventure time munchkin uh at one point i had considered purchasing it just because it had um it had uh, original art by uh, by the artists on that show. Um, however, yes, uh, Munchkin has officially become a parody of itself. I'm sure there are plenty of people who will say, no, Munchkin has always been a parody of itself. 
but uh well i mean in a way it's a parody of like the consumerism of gamers yeah that like it is now we've we've you know moved on from buying one copy of a game that makes fun of all the logicality of a role-playing experience to buying a ton of different versions of the same thing and mixing them together because hey you know more is always better to a fair subset of the gamer community and now to a official versions are better than unofficial versions because they have the official logo on them indeed and uh for all that said i haven't really seen a card game successfully take on munchkin uh, i feel that a lot of popular games um especially dominion get copycats and munchkin has been around 16 17 years and nobody has really uh nobody has really taken the crown from them well, I don't. There are a few people I think would advance the opinion that Munchkin is really all about the play. It's about the laugh. Like oh, Cards Against Humanity is is allegedly all about the laugh, mm-hmm. and you know the the sneak attacks and the good times, not necessarily about like that tense and fraught play that keeps you coming back over and over and over again. Sure. Sure, because if you were if you kept coming back over and over again, then every twenty four hours would just be a single game of Munchkin. Yes. All right. Now the last bit of news we have is uh, from Uwe Rosenberg. Uh, we are seeing. Um, have you heard of Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small? I have. Okay. Yes, that is their two player version of Agricola. They are. It's it's long out of print. Um, it is very expensive. It is being reprinted, Agricola, All Creatures Big and Small, Big Box Edition. Eh. Yep, um, this, is, this is old news, I believe it was announced back in September. Uh, I have now started to see copies on the market. So if you want a compact, portable, two-player game of Agricola, except now larger... Head out there. It's like $30, I believe. Uh, and finally, we have um, uh, Patchwork. News on Patchwork. Tom, you, you own a copy of Patchwork, right? I love Patchwork. I hold it up as one of the better two-player games that's available. Well, uh, also getting printed is Patchwork Express, a smaller, more simplistic version of Patchwork, this time on a 7x7 grid with, let's say, less abstract pieces. Oh. Yes. Oh, well. I'm never going to buy that, I'm sorry. And I like Patchwork a lot, but... Well, that is all the news that occurred at uh, Gen Con. Um, All the big stuff this week. We are going to take a short break and come back with uh, what we played the past week. going to talk about games we played in the last week or two. Uh, Tom, why don't you take away? Last game that we played was a game called Flow of History by designer Jesse Lee, uh, published by TMG 
I think that it had a Kickstarter, but I can't remember. I didn't buy it off of the Kickstarter. Um, it's a great Civ building tableau style game, and the the uh, style of innovation through the ages, uh, nation, and those other uh, card driven Civ builders that do not have like an over map on which the civilization actually kind of lives. Uh, in the game, you purchase cards using this really cool system of uh, bidding and sniping that addresses basically the big concern that I've always had with Through the Ages and Nations uh, in that players often don't have any real way of controlling or countering other players' ability to just get the, the good cards off the board. And there are, like, cards that are more powerful than others. In uh, Flow of History, getting a card is always a two-step process where one player places a bid on the card and then the other player can say, okay, well, if you're willing to pay that much for it, I'll just pay you that price for it and I'll take the card instead. Thank you. And in that way, um, the player can't have immediate access to the card without the uh, rest of the table, in theory, being kind of okay with it. And then on the other hand, uh, if you place a bid on a card, it, you potentially open yourself up to some exposure, because if you don't place your bid high enough, then another player could just take it from you for a very low amount of expenditure. Yes, it is a great system and um, does address uh, one of my primary criticisms with Through the Ages is that uh, sometimes the game can feel completely out of your control. Um, I, can, I can predict what you might have. Uh, I can see what you draw, uh, but there's nothing more feel bad than getting hit with a raid or some other military event that you... Um, that you can really only defend against by bumping up your your own military rating. Uh, in Flow of History, if I see the strongest player about to purchase a military card, it behooves the rest of the table to snipe it from them. Uh, it, it doesn't really get you anything by doing this. It prevents a loss, uh, but uh, in a way, you are bribing the strongest player not to attack them by sweeping the card from under their feet. But all military cards, every attack card in military unit, which in Flow of History are kind of rolled all into one package, has an intrinsic benefit, doesn't it? Well, it has the benefit that each symbol on the card is worth some amount of victory points at the end of the game. In addition to... In, in addition to defense, it does improve your defense to get these cards. Uh, it's It might not be the most efficient play, uh, it often isn't the most efficient play, uh, but you get something out of it, the strongest player gets something out of it, um, and it introduces a lot more interaction into the game uh, that I find other um, Civ-inspired games to be lacking. But yeah, compare that to Nations, where a weak player can buy a war card, <clears throat> and thereby the only thing that they get out of spending their turn buying that war card is that they don't have to lose that war. Right, yes. Um, Nations is uh, a, a game that I've come down a little bit on in hindsight, but um, it's a very tight game. Uh, 
it's a it's the type of game where if you fall behind, there is there's no there's no coming back. Uh, Flow of history has just enough just enough of the feel bad for when you get hit and you lose a card or some technology, but you are never out of the game. Like you are never so far removed from the game that you can't make a last stand. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so that is flow of history. Uh, the other night we played. Um, Castles of Mad King Ludwig, um, also probably probably in my top ten games. Designer Ted Alspeck by Bezier Gabes. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really enjoy that game, even though ostensibly it's just a point salad. Uh, but where another game would have the players agonize over finding the best play for themselves. The one, the master builder, the master builder is the one who decides uh, what the price is going to be. So it is, it is actually their job to agonize what the other players are going to be investing in. And if you choose poorly, the other players will surprise you by taking the cheapest tiles. Uh, and I, I Isn't love really surprising. It sometimes that people take the cheapest <laughs> tiles. Does that surprise you? That would provide an insight to me as to why your being a master builder is usually so poor. Well, yes, it's it's surprising to me because uh, I come at it from a pragmatic angle. I will take whatever gets me the most points. Uh, but um, castles often uh, uh, devolves into cheapskates being cheapskates. That's really the only thing I can say bad about uh, Mad King Ludwig, though, procedurally... Every part about that game is is fun or funny in some kind of way. The the tiles themselves are great. Uh, they all they're unique and they all have a different like title, which is some cool thing you'd have in a castle. But the way that the game makes you put them together means that your castle will make make basically no sense. Like I had a guest room that was adjacent to a pantry, which itself led into a kitchen, which itself led into a scullery, which itself led into a panic room. So I'm kind of envisioning, like, the scary, like, stalker movie where, you know, somebody is staying in a guest bedroom in some forlorn castle. And by the way, that guest bedroom, only bedroom in that entire castle. Uh, And then is just surprised by the vampire count or something and then has to flee through three kitchens to get to a panic room that they just randomly find in the back of the scullery. Yes, uh, I do want to make this a topic at some point. Uh, Board games that tell stories. Um, Tom and I often uh, converse about theme in board games uh, and how... uh, I'm going to say more American games than not... um, have this desire to put flavor text and paragraph upon paragraph on their board games and try to have their board games inorganically tell a story, uh, usually through passages in every card and component. But um, Mad King Ludwig has basically no text outside of the room names. Uh, There's no flavor text uh, all you have is the crudely drawn art on the tiles, and yet, as Tom just described, you get these really interesting stories of castles with a single bedroom, or nothing but bowling alleys, uh, or the bottomless pit 
next to the Venus Grotto. And then there is the fun of watching people agonize over pricing things. And it looks so simple. Like, of course, of course I would price that at 2000 or 4000 or whatever. And then it comes time for you to do it. And, oh, I really want this thing. But if I price it too much, I, get, I, I will have made no money at all. If I price it too little, someone will take it from me. Um, and then it turns out that nobody wanted that tile to begin with, or it doesn't matter if you priced it at 15 or whatever, somebody's just going to take it from you. And then the absurdity of watching, like, after all of these decisions, uh, being carefully crafted, people will just take the one, two, and the $4,000 tiles, no matter what. Indeed. Cheapskates being cheap. Indeed. I love castles. Um, 2014 release, I believe. Uh, if you haven't played it, I think it deserves to be in every library. In stark contrast to its spiritual successor, the Palace of Bad King Ludwig. Yes, yes. We played about, I'm going to say, a quarter of a game of Palace, and one of the very few games that I rage quit. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is a game where everyone is building a single palace, um, I think the master builder was asleep at the job because the moat is uh, constantly surrounding the castle, cutting off entrances, preventing players from completing the rooms that uh, they claim, um, and a lot of, let's say, take that powers going back and forth. Not a fan of that. I want to play it one more time. I want to. I, I want to play... All games I dislike at least twice. Well, uh, Mad King Ludwig, Castles of Mad King Ludwig, is kitschy, and the uh, tile art is primitive, but Palace of Mad King Ludwig is just ugly. Pa- Palace is indeed ugly. It is. Uh, it was a very frustrating experience. If I see it on a table somewhere, uh, I will give it another shot. Um, but... but, like, I mean, the tiles have no real, like, detail. It's just one color. And, like, yeah, you, it's, you're right. Uh-huh. abstract, and they're all the same size, too. Which yes. Feel, uh, it extracts something out yes. of the experience. Yes, yes. Castles results in these um, abstract, uh, I'm going to say thematic, uh, castle plans like this this looks like somewhere a madman would live in um anyway enough of castles let's uh let's go into sidereal confluence uh, a game you and i both love to death do we do we love it to death or just do we love death when we are playing sidereal confluence well last night we uh we we tried the love death route and um found ourselves enjoying the game. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I should note that um, Tom and I really got into Chinatown. Uh, this is a an older game, I believe uh, probably 20 years old at this point. Um, it is a freewheeling negotiation game. Um, everyone is going to get a handful of tiles. They are randomly drawn, so it is very unlikely you are going to get the tiles you want. And you're also going to randomly draw plots of land. Also, very, very unlikely you will get the plots of land that you want. Uh, And from there, you're just negotiating with your fellow players uh, to get both the adjacency bonus, which will net you the real money, um, and the businesses that you want because you also get a a match set bonus. So, like, the comparison that we always try to draw between these two games, though, 
can be a bit strained, can it? I mean, you're saying that Chinatown and sidereal confluence are very similar because they both involve kind of like a free will wheeling trade phase, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, I you have things that I need and I have things that you need, so let's talk about what makes everybody happy. Where Chinatown, you're just trying to develop an engine that spits out money. Yes. That is the only, that is the only thing you are trying to do. In, um, but in Sidereal Confluence, you're trying to do other things, aren't you? Well, I mean, the end goal of Sidereal Confluence is to score points, the vast majority of which will come through researching technology, which are just straight cubes. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, yes, Sidereal Confluence... Uh, shares the same end goal of Chinatown, uh, getting stuff to score the points you need at the end of the game, but it throws, I'm going to say, unnecessary complexity um, into the equation by (laughs) demanding different colored things, um, or specific colored things, and also having, you know, one converter turns this into that, and now you have to trade with someone to get the thing that will turn this into that. It's it ends up it ends up being a mess. You know, it it does end up being a lot cleaner than Chinatown, but how couldn't it? Like Chinatown is is very like minimalistic. Well, to well, the you, point you mean you mean messier, messier than Chinatown? It's going to be messier yes. than Chinatown. Yes, uh, Chinatown is so minimalistic to the point where like you have to get very creative in what you are offering uh, in Chinatown and, like, how that will benefit the other person. Because, like, a lot of trades, particularly in the last half of the game, you'll just say, like, this spot is worth so much money to me. If you can make it worth more to you, I will sell it to you at this price. But... Other than that, like, there's not a whole lot more room for maneuvering in Chinatown beyond getting something, like, creative. Like, you know, I will trade you a, a future. Like, I will make you a, a binding future if I have this or acquire it at some, th- at some future point. I will, I will uh, give it to you. Well, and it's, it's why I think Sidereal Confluence is um, not as strong of a game as Chinatown. Uh, in Chinatown, I can read the board immediately assess what each space is worth. Um, I know what businesses every player has to offer. Uh, so Chinatown, I, I feel like there are no dull turns. Um, maybe the final turn where everybody's just going to slap their tile down and say, yeah, I'm just going to bank off this whatever I can. But most of the time in Chinatown, I feel like every trade is meaningful. And there are a lot of moments where somebody gets uh, hot and bothered because either a dumb trade was made or they missed out on a really good trade. I, I, rarely, I rarely feel that wow moment from Sidereal Confluence, except in last night's game. What was the wow moment in, like, Chinatown that, that you've had recently? Oh, well, just, uh, let's see. When we played on uh, New Year's Day... Um, it was either me or Caleb who was like, no, I'm just going to put these businesses down. And, and you're like, Caleb, Caleb, no, no, I will give you like their value and more for those businesses. Like, 
nah, I think I'm just going to sit him down here in these random places. <laughs> it's, yeah, we, we always have a little bit to drink when we play board games. Um, but uh, it's moments like that in Chinatown that I'm just, I come to the table for. I think really, I'm starting to come around on Sidereal. Um, I had a, a really, a couple of bad, rough games with it. But I have kind of come to the conclusion that Sidereal has so much going on in it at once that it's basically impossible to figure out like ev- what all of the different motivations are for, for trading the way that people do. Um, every, every faction in Sidereal plays completely different, and they have different things that they want. They have different things that they have. In sidereal confluence, if you're really willing to just kind of like take your hands off of the wheel and just try to get what what you want without like really like trying to drive a hard bargain uh, in order to get it, it is possible to come out ahead. Um, just by like going after what what you have in like kind of almost a friendly way that Chinatown kind of discourages. Chinatown is a meaner game. Chinatown, like you, somebody it feels like you're you're always, especially when you're looking at the trade from the outside, you you feel like somebody is getting kind of shafted uh, in every deal in Chinatown, and uh, that's I mean it's it can be fun to watch but there's no doubt in my mind that it's it's frustrating um to see somebody else do better at chinatown just because they are better at screwing over the other guy in sidereal there is there is is room for a little bit of joy in that at least you're you're building something that has like funny names or you're you're flipping over cards you're you're getting stuff discovering technology scoring points so that if you have a two-point loss in in Sidereal, it still feels like you got somewhere. Whereas in Chinatown, if you feel like you lost by a, a slim margin, you're you're kind of a little upset sometimes because your your opponent just was able to like walk all over somebody and you weren't. Yeah, I feel like Chinatown alleviates this somewhat by um, I'm going to say perhaps wisely putting the scoring. In uh, the millions, yeah, I feel like uh, if you if you break a million dollars, you've done well. Um, if the difference between you and opponent is uh, sixty thousand dollars, then yeah, it kind of speaks to you losing out on basically one tile, one yeah. one deal at the one beginning deal. of the game, one deal at the beginning of the game. And you're absolutely right, Chinatown is a meaner game, uh, and I am also coming around on Sidereal more. Um, it is, it is certainly a game I feel as more players get used to it. You know, what to look out for, uh, how to work their race. Uh, it is a game that will really open up. Um, it is the rare game, too, that will actually give you advice on how to play it, uh, which I always appreciate. Yes, yes, agreed. 100 and if you are giving it a shot, I totally <clears throat> recommend trying one of the lower difficulty races. There's no shame in playing a dub race. You may even have more fun, as I did. Yes. Now, uh, what else have we... Now, let's get into the, the lighter fare. Uh, Riff Raff. 
Tom, I, I need to know, how did you... Okay, Riffraff. Riffraff is a dexterity board game. Uh, it is a wooden boat attached to a weighted pendulum um, that you precariously position on what I'm going to call a volcano made out of cardboard. Uh, you have various sized objects. Uh, one is like a little sailor with his arm hanging out. Uh, there's a tiny little barrel, uh, like a giant rum bottle, and you are balancing them on the ship. Uh, there's also uh, these little yard arms that spin around the ship like uh, helicopter blades, uh, rest these on the yard arms. But basically, Riff Raff is a game uh, that you can see your friends act clumsy and silly. Uh, and now my virus protection is going off. Let me mute that. Tom, take this away as I'm distracted. Riff Raff, 2012 release by designer Christoph Kanzler, uh, published by Zach Verlag, and um, tragically, to my mind, not wild, widely uh, available in these United States. I don't think it was ever like officially published here. Is a wonderful game where you have a little Age of Sail tall ship that is awash in a stormy, heaving sea, and each player has a group of little objects that are associated with the boat, like a, a uh, wine jug or a barrel, you know, bits of cargo, there's a mouse and a sailor, and your goal is to get the stuff on the, onto the ship. Uh, and to keep yourself from, in doing that, knocking the items off of the ship which are already upon it. Um, this is made much more difficult from the fact that the ship is actually through a, a clever set of levers and weights and things like that. It's very easy to set up, and yet it's also uh, just, it seems really clever. I've, I haven't really seen a, another game do something like that. It will sway. Um, even, you know, if you tap it a little bit, the entire thing will sway, and physics being what they are, the top of the ship will sway quite a lot. The hull of the ship, which is at the bottom, closer, closer to the center of gravity will not sway as much so it becomes so dramatic and funny and just a, a real happy time uh watching you and your friends like get very very intense about putting the little orange barrel on the ship so that it doesn't fall off and when inevitably like you know the whole thing just starts rocking and then everything comes down it's great it's it's like Jenga, but it's just – it's so much better. It's so much more fun. Um, I first discovered it, uh, of all places, on a cruise ship. Uh, just to give a shout-out to the Jonathan Colton Cruise Crazy uh, and the wonderful board game community that is there. I played it with a great – a bunch of great like-minded uh, folks on that. I quickly uh, swapped for a copy of it when we got back home. And uh, we try to play it as often as we can. As a side bonus, if your foundation is cracked and your house is a little bit crooked, as we found out uh, at another point person's house while playing the game, uh, your ship will be like completely lopsided. That's funny too. By like forty-five degrees yeah, lopsided. Just like which, a, you know, it, it's it's the kind of game like when I dream, uh, where I I don't care about the score. I don't care like 
who who actually wins this. It is uh, far more entertaining to just hell even draw cards randomly and see how far you can go. It is a game that transcends its rules. It yes, it is um, probably my favorite dexterity game, uh, and it is absolutely criminal that it has never been published widely. So again, that's Riff Raff by. Uh, Christoph Kanzler, uh, published by Zach Verlag and occasionally available uh, on Amazon. Um, and uh, I we definitely recommend picking it up. Mm-hmm. Um, now moving on to uh, Decrypto. Tom, what, what can you tell me about Decrypto? Decrypto is clearly a game that was made in response to the success of another uh, secret spy word game. Uh, of course, we're talking about code names. Decrypto, um, which ver- first became widely available in the United States, I think at Origins. That's where we picked it up. Uh, designer. I'm not going to try to pronounce this. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to try to pronounce this. Uh, Thomas Daganet Lasperance. Uh, it sounds like a French name. I hope that you all enjoyed that. Uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, French. Uh, uh, I believe he is uh, French-Canadian. Uh, well, he did a great job making this one. I like it better than uh, Codenames, I'll say, at the outset. Um, Decrypto adds a lot, many more procedural steps to essentially the Codenames experience, but it uh, delivers a result that... I think is is more tense and uh, a little bit less rage inducing sometimes when yes. you get yes you um, get some clues that in code names that make very little sense and sometimes I don't think that, that it's very funny. Yes, that I, might say more about me <laughs> than it says about the game. So so code so code names is a game that uh, is it's like a roller coaster ride. Uh, well, I don't even want to call it a roller coaster ride. It's it's these weird moments of awkward silence when one team says their clue, uh, and then their partners just sit there, yeah. agonizing uh, over guessing. It's hard enough to explain Decrypto even when we have it sitting in front of us, though. It, decry- right? Decrypto, for such a simple game, it is. I have seen had no success. In teaching it to people without them having without them scratching their heads uh, and whipping out cudgels to beat me over the head. And we've had some people become quite angry with us at the deficiency in our decrypto um, tutorial. Well, people who would be angry regardless. Uh, but um, yes, yes, uh, my first game of decrypto teaching it. Both both parties, the ones on my team and my opponents, were like, "Dude, what the hell is this? Like, what are we doing here? What's actually going on?" Which is nice because, like, we tend to play with people that, uh, although they can't really acknowledge it, have some connection to the intelligence community. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I like to think that when uh, when they get that kind of like hot flash of anger that the crypto doesn't make any sense, it's because. We're all actually sitting in the boardroom in the puzzle palace or something, and they're getting their latest horrible assignment, uh, and they have no idea what their goal is, what they're trying to do, and yeah. they just want to yell at their boss for a while. Yeah, yeah. so to explain the game, you have a white and black team. Um, both teams have a shield that will have uh, four 
uh, key codes. Um, they're each tied to a number, uh, one, two, three, and four. Um, each team will have an encoder who will draw a random card, and that card will have a three-digit number, for example, one, two, three. Uh, the encryptor must then come up with three clues to clue his team in to what the secret um, number is, uh, but their opponents will also have a chance to decrypt. Uh, so as the game continues, you're trying to make connections between the clues. Um, so you have to, you have to be vague enough that your opponents can't can't guess, uh, while being specific enough that your team members uh, can guess. Um, and what results is a game that almost feels like uh, I don't know being like a submarine battle. If that's hard to conceptualize. If you have any familiarity with playing code names, picture yourself playing code names. But the thing that you're actually trying to do is to guess the other player's code words. Instead of trying to find your own, you have to find the other players as they give those clues out. Yes, it's it's hard to conceptualize because I really I have not played a game quite like this. Uh, the rule book is like four pages long. And I must have reread each page twenty times before it finally clicked. Uh, it is it is definitely a game that once you play, um, you know, the first couple of rounds, it'll it'll come to you like that. Uh, all right, so yes, that is that is Decrypto. I think I spent twenty or thirty dollars for it at uh, Origins. I highly recommend it um, for uh, party games. Um, hell, I. It's the kind of game that you put on the table. I'll I'll play without without a question. Um, winding down the playlist, uh, I've got Cuba. Tom, tell me a little bit about, about Cuba. So Cuba is an older game from Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. Michael Rennick, uh, Stefan Stadler. Game designers that I am not otherwise uh, familiar with. It was published during the golden age of board game design, which, as every white right-thinking person knows, was 2007. Ah. The uh, year the Galaxy Trucker and Race for the Galaxy both came out. Yes, um, uh, predating uh, Kickstarter as well. <laughs> Cuba is an interesting economic game um, because it seems like it is that rare game where your economy starts out pretty good, and if you're not good about minding what you're doing, your economy can actually get, like, worse. Which is just totally, totally bizarre that uh, it is... You, you wouldn't think that that was possible, given that this is somewhat a solitaire-ish game. Uh, you are not really doing anything that directly influences your opponents, although... You can do some things that make their prices go up or down or whatever. It's it's more like Puerto Rico than food chain magnate, that you're competing for scarce resources instead of taking the bread out of their children's mouths. Yes, yes. Cuba, um, I would call its main mechanism uh, role selection. It, you're not selecting a role that everyone can copy, but... Everyone has a hand of, of cards, the same cards. Mm -hmm. You play one of those cards, and you you activate the cards well, ability. The, the for cards yourself. Are, are actions, right? Yes, yes, uh -huh, right. Uh, yes, you're you are playing these um, five 
five actions from your hand and activating the ability on it. Uh, primarily, uh, you have a little board in front of you um, that uh, has various resources on it. Uh, you move a little worker around. Uh, you can activate the worker to collect these resources. Uh, if you don't, if you don't store some of these resources, they go away permanently. Uh, you can ship them off for some quick victory points. Uh, you can sell them for some money, but money isn't really worth anything uh, except to influence the election at the end of a round. And this is my favorite part of the game. Um, I love I love games with decrees. It manages to out Twilight Imperium. Yes, Twilight yes. Imperium. Y yes, like, my. My favorite thing about Twilight Imperium uh, are are the agenda cards, but only when they matter. Only when they matter and in Cuba, Cuba, they always matter. They always matter. Yeah. Um, I I lost this game by one point uh, because in the last round i I had to I had to choose two decrees. You always have to choose two out of four decrees um, to pass, and it would have altered my score. To the point where I would win or lose by just a handful of points, uh, but in doing so, I managed to beat the other my other two opponents, uh, who were let's say second and third place. But then the last place person shot so far ahead because one of the decrees I enacted benefited them. Basically, it gave them. Uh, I think like five or six points for being in last place. From the depths of hell. F from the depths of hell, they rose and overtook me uh, <laughs> and beat me by one point. Uh, and it was one of those it was one of those board gaming moments where you are both like flabbergasted, frustrated, but ready to play the game again. Game respects uh, game. Game, yes, yes. Uh, it is, uh, but my. My largest complaint about Cuba, I feel like it drains. It drains so much energy from you. Um, it is a little on the longer side compared to uh, most Euros of this type. Uh, Let me ask you this. Uh-huh. We had a four-player game. Yes. And our, I've never really seen um, this particular game end with such a tight-knit uh, band of scores. Mm-hmm. So we all basically finished within one point of each other. Pretty much, it yes. It was between like 80 and 76. Mm -hmm. What do you think that says about us and about the game, particularly given that the winning player actually made it to the very end of the score track, exactly? I, I would say that um, Cuba is an exceptionally well-balanced game. Um, I don't think there is really any fat in the game. There is nothing about its design that makes me think, oh, they, they should have cut this out. But this do doesn't belong here. Do you think it's possible that there's like a Castle of Burgundy size style, like point salad thing going on where we all basically got like the minimum number of points? You think we could have done better? I wonder if like maybe just if we all, I mean, being relatively inexperienced mm -hmm. in the game. Yes. If we all might have just gotten sort of like the, the quote kind of like quintessential game where everybody sort of like does a B-plus job at playing Cuba and achieves that one result, and that as a result of our unfamiliarity, we didn't really see the, the opportunity for play or for like 
a significant advancement there, and that's why all of our our scores ended up being so tightly bound together. Uh, I don't I don't know. Um, I I don't like looking at the the biggest opportunities to score in that game um, are shipping things. Um, each ship will can hold um, is it four or five goods? Uh, let's just Let's just say four, uh, you know, for the sake that I don't have the game in front of me right now. Um, the most expensive ship will be three points for per good. So the game is what six rounds, you know, six yeah. times six times twelve. Like if if you did nothing in the game except ship goods, you would end up with seventy two points, putting you like close to the uh, close to the end of the track. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say a typical final score would probably be. 70 plus or minus 10 or 15 um, there there is certainly there is certainly room for more skillful play uh, but I don't think these scores would be um, any higher than than the end of the track well it's a thoroughly unscientific idea it's just uh-huh. it's, I've, yes you rarely just... see new players with a Right, a, a score that band, that tightly banded. For the sake of conversation, yes. Um, my observation is just that the game the game presents you with many opportunities um, to score, and we we maximize them within our limited knowledge of uh, of how to play. Um, you know, you and I have we've only played like twice now. I don't even think we finished the first time we played, but. Uh, no, Cuba, Cuba, fantastic game. Unfortunately, it is completely out of print. <laughs> Good luck finding yourself a copy. I don't even know why we're talking about it. Because yeah. it's great. Oh, okay, sure, yeah, uh, it's, I mean, it's great. It's great, and we found it at the Penny Arcade Unplugged um, Game Library back in Philadelphia in uh, November. It was a game that I knew by reputation, and always wanted to try and there it was a $130 board game just sitting on a table uh-huh. in the middle of downtown Philly. Yep. Uh so like um you know any any person I just decided to do pick it up and walk away with it. Yep, trade trade for it people, you know, get it in the trade, uh get it second hand. Good game. Um but and or play it at a con. Mm-hmm. See, give it a try. Don't be don't be scared. All right. So, that does it for games we played. Uh, we are going to take a short break and come back with our main topic, Millennium Blades. Ooh, boy. <laughs> Recording now, so just uh, just uh, stretch out. No, you know, get the welcome back to table topics. Yep. So, Tom, our main topic today um, is a 2016 release by D. Brad Talton, uh, published by Level oh, 99. Mm-hmm. Um, Millennium Blades. Uh, now, Tom, I don't think you would disagree that you and I are children of the 90s, uh, what I like to call the, the PlayStation 1 generation. Uh, you know, we, we remember Final Fantasy, uh, the Final Fantasy series at its height, um, when 
Image Comics formed after uh, after Marvel's economic decline. Um, when uh, Magic the Gathering started to come around and and uh, nerd hobbies, when when uh, Catan hit the market and nerd ho- hobbies really took off. We remember that heartbreaking episode of The Simpsons where we realized The Simpsons wasn't good anymore. Oh, yes, yes. That was around 1999, uh, whenever the Dolphin Treehouse of Horror was good God. Uh, Millennium Blades is a loving homage to that more innocent time of uh, pixelated graphics and crudely polygonal characters um, when it became safe to uh, recall your nostalgia as seen in movies like Ready Player One. Does a great job at providing so many different references and such a great variety of different representations of all of the things that you like uh, in, in a funny way, like, you know, Yoshi and from Mario. Everybody remember Yoshi? Oh, yeah, yes. No, who could forget Yoshi, who has been in so many great games as Yoshi's Story and Yoshi's Cookie. Uh, yes, yes, and um, the game references Mario. Mm-hmm. References, you know, Cloud Strife, everybody's uh, favorite character, and uh, it is a lovingly illustrated game. Or even go so far as to represent the fact he doesn't say anything. Oh, uh, yes, yes, uh-huh, yep, the mute protagonist, uh, popular in JRPGs. Um, gorgeous game. Uh, Has that wad of money thing that I've oh, not yes. seen any other... Oh yes, game yes. do. Mm-hmm. There is there is nothing I dislike more than paper money in a board game. But uh, Millennium Blades uh, stacks that money into a wad that you then uh, tape together, and yeah, you just you just kind of throw these wads around. I mean, there's there's no real interaction with these wads aside from uh, buying and selling cards. But that's the level ninety nine touch. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no reason why it needs to be a wad of money, but it, it adds something. It it really does. Yeah, oh, oh oh I'm I'm sorry Tom. Um, have we have we discussed like what the actual gameplay is or? Uh, uh? So Millennium Blades is a trading card game simulator where players will assemble decks and collections and then fight the decks against each other to see who has the best cards and then therefore scores the most amount of points. It bills itself as being a game where you're not really collecting cards, uh, you're collecting sort of like these stocks and bonds type things uh, that will be worth a, a different amount of money depending on the market and will achieve different effects depending on what other market conditions are in play. It really is more of an investment game than it is a card battling game. Um, the majority of your time, uh, in fact, I would say precisely 80 minutes of your time is spent purchasing cards and collecting points by matching their sets uh, or stashing them away for the future tournament. And despite all of that, I just couldn't be more disappointed. Uh, yes, in this yeah, game. I <laughs> there's there I uh, I cannot think of a game I've played this year um, that I have disliked 
more than Millennium Blades. And we held out such hope for it, because really, we love Chocobos, and we love Mario, we love all of that stuff that that these games are, are this game is trying to represent, and if this game has a redeeming quality, it is the fact that the art direction on it is just so strong, and that there is a there's a lot of it. Like there is a a lot of of different stuff in here going on. But the problem is with this game is manifold. It goes with so many different directions. There's so much that is kind of like wrong with it. It can be difficult to start. Well, I I realized that something was wrong when. I'm going to say at the beginning of the second tournament, there are there are three tournaments um, and there are three buy-sell phases. Uh, during the second tournament, when we are already probably about 70 minutes in the game, because each of the buy-sell phases are 20 minutes timed. Um, so yeah, we are at the beginning of the second tournament and you turn and look at me and you say like, you know, do, does it feel like we're fighting? <laughs> it really doesn't. Like, no, no, despite it does the, not. the fact the game goes out of its way to provide you opportunities to fight with each other, there are a variety of mechanisms, but players just don't because it doesn't make a lot of sense to go after one competitor. There's that sort of dilemma where if you spend your time going after the leader, then your opponent, who is not involved in the fight at all, will just get away scot free, and leverage that to an easier win so what you're what you're more incentivized to do is instead of fighting with your opponent directly is to just try and beat them in terms of having a nicer collection of things but that is just so far away from like the trading card game experience where you really you're just trying to beat the guy you know you want it's it's not that you want to kill him it's just you want them to not be alive <laughs> anymore <laughs> It, it is uh, it is the kind of, of game that um, sort of pulls a little a switcheroo on you. Um, on the outset, it is primarily, I feel, like a, a stocks and bond trading game. Uh, of course, the stocks never grow in value. You're just, you're, you're buying futures. Um, and cards do some, all cards do one thing, really. They have attributes, which make them valuable for, in, in some ways, but... Cards are so hyper-specific and geared toward one thing that they do that they're not really, like, fungible. They're not, like, they're they're not marketable. Like, you kind of, like, there is some trading that went on in our game, but I can't, I could, it might be trying to be a stocks and bonds game, but there isn't really any kind of, like, competition for these things. Because you either draw it or you don't, or you either randomly rip it out, and that's one thing that we didn't mention. Virtually all buys in this game are blind, or semi-blind. You have a, a an idea of what you may get, but in true trading card game package, you don't know what's actually in the booster pack until you open it up and add it to your collection. So It, it could be junk. It could be a 100-point game-winning play for you. And, tr- and true to the game, the games that it emulates, all buys in Millennium Blades are actually losing bets. Uh, mathematically, 
you're more likely to buy a card that is less valuable than what you are actually paying for it, than uh, something that is more worthwhile. Yes, it's um, the game kind of has a uh, tenuous relationship with us. Uh, we we tried you you purchased this game like probably the month it came out, and we tried to get it to the table a couple of times. But in another one of the problems that Millennium Blades has, you have to have a relatively specific set of people in order to play it. Yes, you, yes. Um, if if they don't get the humor or if they don't really understand the references, then there is no point to the person playing the game. Yes, it's very much uh, in the same vein as role player. Uh, a game that I I enjoy more than Sagrada. You know, both of these games are dice drafting games. You're placing dice on your board to maximize points. You know, sometimes you, you want a three here or you want a red die there. But where Sagrada's theme is, uh, or its, its aesthetic is stained glass windows, something that your grandmother can get behind. Role players. Um, style is very much you are building a Dungeons and Dragons character sheet. Uh, in fact, you, you even build basically a legal character. Not a character I'd like to play, but you build a Dungeons and Dragons character. And uh, we have a pretty diverse crowd of gamers. I couldn't sell half the people on Roleplayer. Yeah. And that's its failing, really, for Sagrada. Like, how do you like explain like you know the the self indulgence and the humor of role player to someone who has never actually played Dungeons and Dragons? Right. You can't really you know the player has to come to the table with that experience in order to derive any meaning from it. Yeah. Like the, and this is a dump stat. What's yeah. a dump stat? <laughs> you know. It, yeah. But Sagrada, you can say, look, we're rolling dice and then we're going to take turns picking them and we're trying to make a pretty window. And uh, that's a, you know, clean, interesting experience that isn't going to knock my socks off or anything, but I always enjoy playing Sagrada, and the few times that I played Roleplayer, it kind of overstayed its welcome, sort of like Millennium Blades did. That's another problem with Millennium Blades is that, to be honest, it feels like it just takes too darn long. I mean, it is, Millennium Blades is a game that is base 80 minutes. As uh, you have a mandatory, um, um, ex excuse me, a base 60, 60 minutes. You have three buy-sell phases of 20 minutes each. Uh, and then you have to tack on the time it takes to run the tournaments. Um, there's, you know, there's probably in your first game going to be moments where you say, all right, pause the timer, I have a question. Nope. Alexa, pause! Um, it, it took us probably about two and a half to three hours Um to play a game that I would have rather just played two or three games of Galaxy Trucker. Yeah. And that's kind of where it's at in terms of that real-time nerdy fun is go and play Galaxy Trucker. Um, you know, you'll get the reference. If you you really want to get deep into the weeds of, of Galaxy Trucker, you can even build a Death Star or something like that. Um, Millennium Blades really, really regrettably had just an incredible disappointment yeah I, I think I definitely think there's room for improvement um, I don't know if Millennium Blaze will ever be revisited uh, I know that level 99 has the 
very successful uh, BattleCon series, which is um, sort of a, a fighting game distilled into a, a card game, not well, unlike what um, well, Millennium, Millennium Blade's got the now standard second Kickstarter. Oh, okay. Uh, to fund the printing of various promotional and expansion materials. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, well, I mean, they did actually, like, part of that was to fund a reprint of the game. It's it's amazing to me that, like, for a game that allegedly did as well as Millennium Blades, they need, a, a company like Level 99 would need to seek funding uh, to, well, to to get this one. You, you could say the same thing about Simon. you know, it's it's not about funding. It's it, if you put out a Kickstarter, it's basically free advertising. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it, everybody in the board game world is going to see this. And hey, if you're offering, you know, one or two exclusive tchotchkes, then they will uh, throw money at you. Um, yeah, I think there is definite room for improvement in Millennium Blades. Uh, if you were to axe one of the two. Uh, features from it, like either make it a game about um, investing in collectibles, or make it a game that's about like building a really fast deck and just like fighting your friends. Uh, it doesn't need to be both. Um, and the reason we bring up uh, Galaxy Trucker is because Millennium Blades has this. Uh, I'm not going to call it dexterity, but there is this real time aspect to it where you're grabbing stuff. Um, from a central board, and it's just it's real time. So, but whereas Galaxy Trucker has that great like real time procedural element to it, and all of the, the information in Galaxy Trucker is communicated super quickly uh, and efficiently using their tiles, which are are nice and clear. Millennium Blades, the cards are complex and do a variety of things and have a variety of features, and they also have this nice art. There's kind of the whole point, and you're supposed to sort of take it in and enjoy the fact that, like, you know, there's Tank Girl, mm -hmm, or, right, yes. or, you know, Captain Tight Pants, or, yep, or Sailor whatever. Moon, and et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, you got you get Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop, but uh, it turns out that he's a green card, and I really needed a blue card, so... Sorry, Spike. Bye, Spike. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you have to do all of that kind of circumlocution in 30 seconds or whatever the however much time you're allotted I, and I, it's just I, I spent much of my time with my face buried in my hand reading what these cards do and just completely ignoring <laughs> like everybody else's pleas for hey do you have a brown card do you have a level 4 brown card do you have a level 4 brown shut up I'm reading my deck right yeah, um... Whereas in, I mean, you know, Galaxy Trucker, everybody is so into that market that, you know, we're slapping each other's hands out of the way. Yep. And which one of you so-and-sos took all the batteries and, like, I can't believe I can't find a laser or an engine or yeah, something yeah. that and actually makes me feel like I'm playing with other human people. And to a greater extent, the second phase of Galaxy Trucker... Um, is a really beautiful extension of the uh, of the of the building phase uh, in in Millennium Blades. I can sort of like have a winning deck and just sock it away for the next tournament. Uh, there are um, two cards that come out that reward you for like matching their type, but you really only need one card of each type to match. 
So once if you find that winning combination in your first hand, the rest of the tournament, like the buy-sell phase is just there. 20 minutes to get, what, up to 21 points? In fact, you stood up, and uh, with about, like, five minutes left or whatever, and I think you just went to the kitchen and, like, made yourself a drink yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's nothing more I could do. So I left, I actively left the game while the timer was running. And, I mean, there was even a point where you, like, you went up to the bathroom <laughs> while the timer was running. But, yeah, I mean, the most damaging fact of this game is that I... I really crushed that first tournament, and uh, I wanted to do something different in the the second tournament because, like I mentioned in our our segment on uh, the news, I have never been a net decker. You know, I've wanted to do my own thing and to see how that runs out. And I won the second tournament; and it was just nice too. And then. By the third tournament, I just really couldn't be bothered anymore. I felt like I had that problem that a lot of people claim that they get when they play a game like Rebellion. That I've seen what this game can do. I'm not sure if there's anything really left really for me to see here, you know. I've 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 made the combo and uh, I tried to do some some aggressive stuff, but it turns out that you know the game just hands out things that that turn off aggressive cards. Like there was never a position that I was in, even though I was act you know I was begging for it that I could actually like engage with one of you guys and really kind of like fight you. Yeah, yeah. I, just, um, I wanted to have that experience, but I couldn't get it. Mm-hmm, yeah, the the game our game was won uh, through the set collection mechanism. Uh, the final tournament awards almost as much points as winning the first and second tournaments first mm-hmm. place. Um, and uh, uh, again, we were we were pretty close in score in this game. But um, you crushed the first and second tournament. You never did particularly well at the set collection. Um, well, and one thing I enjoy is that it rewards set collection to the extent that basically um, that will be kind of like the tiebreaker. Right, That's you can't you can't of... ignore it if you want to win the game. You can't ignore the set collection. Well, I wasn't ignoring it, but I did I didn't key into mm-hmm. um, the one player found that getting the higher numbered cards is the key to doing well in the the collection portion of it. Um, and I always like I felt like this incredible remorse at, t- at at tossing away basically what I felt was a good card um, that this other player apparently did not feel, and uh, hence their victory. Now um, we discussed after the game. Uh, you thought that one of the reasons we didn't have a good time was that we had a bad. Uh, I'm just going to say like mountain like the starting cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it reminded me of another game that we played last year, didn't really care for that much, uh, Ethnos, um, by uh, Paolo Mori, uh, Simon game. Uh, it's an area control game where you are, you're, it's, it's also a set collection game. Um, and like, and Ethnos and Millennium Blades are similar in that they have um, variable loadouts. Yes. You can go into an Ethnos game essentially with different pieces. And in Millennium Blades, you can also decide what pieces you want to play with. Right, and some sometimes, legitimately, you could wind up with just like uh, with with bad 
setups. Um, one of the decks that uh, that I was very interested in rewarded you in Millennium Blades. Uh, it rewarded you for having different sets, and that's easy because in one game you're talking about like nine or ten unique sets. Mm-hmm. Um, Plus but, promos. Mm, yes, right. Plus, plus, pro, plus yeah. player but, promos. Mm, yes, plus. but then we, we also had like the Apocalypse set, which all the cards are worth net zero points. So they'll they'll give you they'll give you um, ranking. I, I wanna I wanna specify there's a difference between like your victory points and your ranking. Um, the apocalypse set will give you like plus forty ranking, uh, during scoring, minus forty ranking. And I, I had no idea how to use those cards, uh, and I, I figure that there has to be something that, you know, something that we didn't play with that really, uh, that really gives you some kind of benefit from those. No, I mean, I've thought a lot about that, because I, too, wanted to have that experience, but in the world of, like, collectible card games, there are these combo players that meticulously seek out cards that play well together and uh, in some cases form a combination of abilities that will break the game that uh, will will result in yes. like an infinite infinite result well and as as an aside um millennium blades does address this uh by saying if you result in a combo that just gives you an infinite points like i think you just you just win the tournament or so it's possible, yeah. but the thing is, is that a, a combo deck in real in the in the real world is always um, the result of like a lot of careful thought and careful jiggering to make sure that it will it will function as a nice, well oiled machine. And it's impossible to do that in Millennium Blades, where you have a stack of you know conservatively maybe like two hundred or three hundred cards. And you have no way of getting what you need outside of like what happens to enter the aftermarket. Mm-hmm. And, and in Millennium Blades, there is a place where cards go after you sell them that they are made available to other players. But the other players have to sell those cards, otherwise they don't actually enter that aftermarket area. And uh, players will, you know, unless they need more money, there's no reason to part with your cards. Money doesn't really do anything for no, you. No, yeah, yeah. So, um, whereas in the real world, you know, players have all the reason in the world to get rid of cards that mm-hmm. they don't need because they get money. And then, unlike, you know, Millennium Blades, money in the real world is is worth something. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, it might be the only thing, uh, depending on who you ask. Um so yep, we are we are down on Millennium Blades, but um, uh, I wanted to expand this uh, topic. Can you can you think of a game that you feel is just like one part too many, like that it is two disparate games just kind of taped together, um, and that it it would be improved by by favoring one over the other. Why don't I ask you that question? Because okay. Because you probably have something in mind. I, I, to- I totally do. Okay, I have, so, uh... so to expand on this uh, take two at whatever time we're at, 5.05 p.m. So the big problem that we have with uh, Millennium Blades when it comes down to it is it feels kind of like two half games that have been fused together in order to form 
a larger game, a Franken game, which does not really a work. Franken game, yes, I would love somebody make a game about uh, Victor Frankenstein piecing together. I'm sure, I'm sure it exists. I'm and, sure it already exists. But I'm sure that like Franken game already exists. There are many other games which are are so to speak cynically less than the sum of their parts. Justin, can you uh, think of any games that you have played which feel like they are? perhaps like two games that do not function well in the the same overall game. Oh, why, yes I can, sir. And that game is Feudum, uh, designed by Mark K. Swanson. Um, Feudum, never heard of it. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it was, uh, it was published this year. Um, kind of a, a successful Kickstarter from last year. A uh, friend of ours picked it up at Origins. Um, this was around like 12, 12 a.m. We're heading back to the hotel room. Uh, we find a nice dark corner in the walkway connecting the hotel with the convention center. And he's like, yeah, let's play Feudum. Now, uh, keep in mind that after he purchased Feudum and sat down to learn it, um, the, uh, the main host of, uh, Heavy Cardboard, uh, for, forgive me for not having your name, um, off the top of my head. And of course uh, you're listening to this, you ego maniac. Oh, 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 top, no, nobody's listening to this, we're just screaming into the ether. Um, he, he walked by and he said, wow, Feudum, there are two games I will never teach. What is Feudum and what is John Company? And I'm like, ah, oh, great. I clenched a little when I heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When 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 the authoritative source in the community of teaching um, pinheaded, hard to play games says that he will never teach this game, you should probably listen to the band. Uh, and sure enough, sixty minutes of learning later, it's it's about one a.m. and Tom was like, "Peace," <laughs> leaving leaving me and two others behind. Uh, to go through about two and a half hours. Just as a philosophical aside, <laughs> I am a great believer in gaming in an appropriate environment. Yeah. An appropriate environment <laughs> involves proper lighting. Uh-huh. Comfortable seating. Right. And at uh, a appropriate level of noise. Temperature is nice. So, refreshments are available. I am what you would call like an esteemed traveler. I'm not really a, about like roughing it out in the woods. So and, what? So what you're telling me is that panhandlers walking up to you while you're playing a board game isn't an appropriate environment for yeah, playing a heavy board game in the breezeway, uh, like next to like what I can only assume is some kind of like um, performance art slash like art installation slash Blade Runner promotional like style um, Blade Runner style promotional wall sized billboard it's just glaring at the other you know at the other end that's, no, I, that's the ambiance you know that's origins I couldn't do it I'm afraid not I mean I, I'm not that bad I will play in a large windowless room I, I often do and enjoy it quite a lot but, uh, no, if you're going to do that to yourself, if you're going to play Feudum, why not, you know, play it someplace that, you know, is, is nice? Well, I don't blame you for piecing out, Tom. Um, I, I will 
share my opinion of the gameplay some other time, not this time. Um, I will say that the gist of this game is that you have uh, the in a dudes on a map style game. Let's say styled like uh, Kemet, uh, maybe even styled like Mario Nostrum Empires, um, where you are claiming territory interacting with the other players, building farms, uh, killing their units. Uh, but but what is it about it that makes it a Franken game? So you have you have this like dudes on a map area control aspect. And all of that influences these six guilds that sort of exist off the board. Um, there are, yeah, these six guilds uh, all interact with each other by essentially pushing and pulling components back and forth. So the farmers uh, give goods to the storekeeper who stocks his stores. The storekeeper sells it to the alchemist who builds uh, uh, dirigibles and submarines. Uh, somehow this is utilized by the soldiers um, who, who uh, staff their ranks with, uh, with the alchemist's weapons. Uh, the soldiers will then push all of their stuff to the, the princess, who, um, who issues uh, uh, writs. And these writs are, only exist to um, let you score hidden objectives at the end of the game. And of course, the, uh, the royal princess, she influences the monastery. And the monastery influences the farms in a most absurd way by feeding the farmer's chickens uh, rosary beads. Don't ask. I'm sorry. Wait, wait. It the the chickens eat the rosary. No, the chickens eat the rosary beads, Tom. Okay. Yeah. Don't don't ask. Don't ask. Um. In, individually, individually, I think uh, both parts are interesting. They could be fleshed out into fully formed games. Um. The guild mechanism, especially, uh, is very player driven, and you know we have discussed multiple times how much we like player driven games where the state of the board is decided by the actions of the players. And indeed, this is a game where the economy can dry up, the well can dry up, um, because someone someone ate all the apples but didn't plant any new apple trees. Uh, in execution, though, it's, it's kind of a mess. Um, I'm sure that things would, would be more streamlined with uh, as you get more experienced in the game, uh, but we... We never felt like there is enough tension to justify three hours of pushing and pulling cubes back and forth. Um, I, I may not enjoy playing Through the Ages, but I can never say that a game of Through the Ages has ever felt boring. Did you find Feudum to be boring? Just a little bit, yeah. Yeah, just, just a little bit. And um, in this day and age where... Uh, You'll get like a hundred board games a month. I ain't got no time for boring games. Um, I think that um, the example, another example of a bad Franken game that I would put forward is actually Blood Rage. In that interesting. It has that bifurcated drafting phase. Okay. And then, again, once again, a dude's on a map mm -hmm. style uh, fighting and, and card play and, uh, you know, a conquest to see who's going to control this fantastic version of uh, the north yeah yeah um does the drafting in in blood rage has that ever felt particularly compelling to you it it really hasn't uh 
it's drafting is one of those um, uh, difficult things where you have to have you have to know the game to do to succeed at the drafting, um, and as such, in Blood Rage, you can wind up in a situation where, uh, let's say, an inexperienced player passes the experienced player a really good card. It's one of those games where it benefits you to be on the left of the least experienced player. Oh, that's a lot of games. Sure, sure, but particularly so in Blood Rage. Um, And there are a lot of uh, sick, nasty combos that you will never see coming until you either happen into them by chance uh, or you're passed to them. They are passed to you by a foolish player. Uh, But, no, yeah, I agree with you that, uh, that Blood Rage... If it was just dudes on a map, if it was just like Kemet, you know, if it was just Kemet, Tom, a fantastic <laughs> skirmish dudes on a map game. If it were just Kemet, uh-huh. where like you got, <laughs> because I mean, like there's there's something to be said for the comparison in Kemet, you acquire like what Blood Rage wants you to draft, uh, Kemet just invites you to kind of take, yeah, right, you know, take mm-hmm. take as you want and. You know, if the the buffet in Kebet has dried up, then you can't you can't take the mummy. The other guy already got the mummy. Sorry, right. but uh, no, that is a much better game. Mm-hmm. I feel. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Feudum, Blood Rage, Millennium Blades. Lisboa kind of has that issue too, doesn't it? Where it has just way too many subsystems going on to okay. kind of make any sense. All right, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting you to bring up Lisboa, but um, no, it's Lis- Lisboa. Lisboa was incredibly tough to learn. Actually playing the game is as simple as playing one of two cards, either in front of you or on the board. However, that card play leads to gears spinning upon gears upon, you know, spinning upon gears. Well, every card is, is like, every card, it, it's, I don't know, man, <laughs> it feels... Like kind of like a uh, three dimensional Uno because every <laughs> yeah, three dimensional Uno every card uh, you can just you can play play the card a bunch of different ways. It's the same card. It has like the same stuff on it no matter how you play it. But right somehow it's just different and it goes to a different like part of the board, each mm-hmm. of which has its own different rules because it's just a different in a different universe. Right, or right. Something. But it, it yeah it goes Lisboa goes to the extreme. Where to do a single action, you know, you, you need to have the money to perform it. How do you get the money to perform it? Well, you do this this other action. To do this other action, you have to discard a completely different card, uh, and you're you're basically going through like five steps to accomplish one thing. Um, Lisboa, though, um, I was a little sour at first. I've come around. That is a game that if you said, "Hey, you want to play Lisboa?" I'd be like, "Yeah, sure." Lisboa has some redeeming qualities. Yes, too. yes. Um, Unlike uh, Mombasa. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we will save Mombasa for another day. Perhaps a game about inappropriate Thebes. Um, but uh, I think that does it for today. That was uh, the inaugural episode of Table Topics. Thank you for listening. All right. Everybody have a nice day. Have a good game. Bye.
Alright, for real, I need 20 seconds of room tone. Mm-hmm. <sighs> 